0: Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine,
1: Welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bortoletto, and I'm joined by my trio of co-hosts, Daylon, James, Blake Evans, and Molly Cornfield. How are you three?
2: Doing excellent. It is wonderful to see you all, as always. Happy to be here.
3: I'm doing all right myself. Good to see you guys.
4: Doing well today. Glad those East Coasters of you are doing well with all the smoke and everything cleared up.
1: Molly, the voice of reason, now a recurring theme on the podcast, which we're also excited about highlighting the Consider This articles each month in the FNS Unplugged podcast. We have kind of a hodgepodge of articles uh, this month in FNS Unplugged. We don't have anything that kind of fits a nice arc, so we're just going to pick on Daylon and have him start. Daylon, you picked a paper that was kind of close to home. You stayed within the confines of uh, Manhattan. Tell us a little bit about this article from the folks at Columbia University.
3: Yeah, yeah, I see what you're doing. Getting the science article out of the way. Well, I'm telling you what, this is going to draw you guys in. I got a story about recurrent pregnancy loss. There are more than a million miscarriages each year in the U.S. alone, affecting roughly 20% of known pregnancies. 2% of couples trying to conceive have undergone recurrent pregnancy loss, which is a loss of two or more. But the causes of this are diverse, aneuploidy, uterine anomaly, environmental or physical insult, autoimmune conditions, et cetera. In about half of all the cases of recurrent pregnancy loss, the cause cannot be clearly identified. This can be agonizing, of course, for patients, but it's also just not great medicine as these patients are at greater risk for negative outcome and future attempts, but lack an understanding of the etiology of loss or an approach for improving their odds. So Zev Williams, chief of the REI division at Columbia University Medical Center has long focused on recurrent pregnancy loss, specifically leveraging next generation sequencing and novel biologics to understand and address the root causes. In this story, hot off the press at FNS Science, his group extends their imprint in this field by describing a novel function for transposable elements recurrent pregnancy loss so before we get into the details of the study a brief primer transposable elements also known as quote jumping genes are dna sequences that move from one location on the genome to another they're present in almost all organisms and usually highly represented indeed more than half of our own human genome is made up of transposable elements. And that's because over eons of evolution, the migration of transposable elements is actually what drives the changes that are inherited by a speciation. But in the context of a single organism's life, migration of transposons into a random spot in the genome, maybe one that houses a tumor suppressor, for example, can wreak havoc. For this reason, transposable elements are typically silenced, but there is latent potential for them to be activated in cells with a range of potential consequences. So back to the paper. The authors here, led by Maurizio Mauro and Sean Wei, who are at Columbia and Albert Einstein College of Medicine, they elucidated here a link between transposable elements and recurrent pregnancy loss. The focal point was this unique patient, 31 years old, with history of five consecutive pregnancy losses all around at six to seven weeks gestational age. The karyotypes of her two most recent losses were euploid. She had no autoimmune indications or uterine anomalies, denied toxic habits or exposures, had no family history of recurrent pregnancy loss. And then of course during her current her sixth pregnancy, ultrasound indicated cessation of cardiac activity around 7 weeks and they did transcervical embryoscopy identifying an embryo with major morphological abnormalities but a normal karyotype. Given the normal karyotype, they went a little deeper, performed transcriptional analysis, Here, RNA sequencing of the trophoblast, and compared it to transcriptomic similar RNA-seq of trophoblast from 10 reference patients who had undergone spontaneous or elective abortion. Surprisingly few, only four genes, were differentially regulated amongst the top hits. But among those was this one, long-interspersed element one or line one, the only transposable element that has potential to be activated in humans. With some further mechanistic experiments that I encourage the listeners to go into, this is a really tight study, well done. With those experiments, the authors went on to link line one expression specifically in those patient cells to increased apoptosis. Also did whole genome sequencing on the fetus and revealed two specific genes, MECOM and DOC1 that had Missense mutations, so that the whole genome sequencing—I mean, a bit heavy lift, a lot of NGS here for this story—but it closed the circle, suggesting that the aberrant LINE one expression and a resultant increase in transposable elements hopping randomly around the genome led to disruption of genes early in embryogenesis that was ultimately catastrophic. I I was really impressed with this story, as I've said. One, because it concretely identifies a link between line one activity and pregnancy loss. And two, maybe more so, because it illustrates how high tech and personalized approaches are providing unprecedented diagnostic resolution. Again, showing how REI is a leading forum for medical innovation and discovery. And it's why it's so exciting to be a part of this field. I mean, I put it to you guys, obviously you're not gonna go Rambo here with the whole genome sequencing and everything, but what do you think about this kind of next level analysis on a personalized level to get down to the etiology of this individual's history of recurrent pregnancy loss? And do any of you guys have patients like this? And what do you do when you're getting onto five, six recurrent losses?
1: Boy, do we all have patients like this. These are the tough ones, Dylan. I always start the evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss by saying the most likely scenario, unfortunately, is that when we do kind of the best evaluation we have, most likely scenarios, we're not going to find a reason for this. And that's both devastating, but also I think sets the stage for once you do all the evaluation, you can say, remember, we talked about this. We're going to go looking for things that we know are evidence based, things that are the literature's kind of littered with stories of, but then there's stuff like this where it's going beyond what's in our guidelines, beyond kind of what the understanding of RPL is and and really doing detective work. I think that's what the most amazing thing about this article is, this is detective work. These are people kind of coming up with the, finding the crime scene and then chasing down all the different pieces of evidence to understand why exactly this happened. You may not come up with something that's modifiable. I think that's always the frustrating thing about recurrent pregnancy loss, but I think there's therapy and diagnosis for so many of these patients. Sometimes it's closure for moving on to donor eggs or a gestational carrier, but I think getting a resolution with this kind of investigative work is so immensely therapeutic.
2: Yeah, these are super tough cases. I certainly commend the authors for this study. Really, really cool, Uh, just just a way to put it. I think it was really interesting what they did. Is it repeatable? Is it something that we find in future patients who have unexplained recurrent Pregnancy loss is hard to say, and as you alluded to, Pietro, is this something that's modifiable? If you find a, a line one mutation, is it modifiable maybe in the future? I don't know, but I think it's a, a really cool proof of concept study, and hopefully more will come of it in the future.
4: I'm interested in where we're going from here, specifically, what are they going to recommend for this patient? Are we going down the road of donor gametes or donor embryo if this is happening within the trophoblast? So what do we do next?
1: That sounds like an FNS reports paper, or even consider this paper, the follow-up to what actually happened and what the end of the story looks like for this couple. Thanks, Dylan. That was a really great paper in FNS Science. I really enjoyed kind of the detective aspect of it. We're gonna take a hard pivot, and we're gonna go to Blake, who's gonna tell us a little bit about review article in FNS Reviews this month.
2: Thanks, Pietro. So this paper is entitled Current Concepts, Therapies, and Recommendations to Assist Fertility Outcomes in Male Patients with Spinal Cord Injury. And this is based out of Baylor by Jeffrey Song and Mohit Kara. In 2021, the incidence of traumatic spinal cord injury was approximately 54 cases per 1 million people in the US, and this accounted for roughly 17,000 new cases each year. Interestingly, men accounted for 78% of the new cases. So the number one cause, as you probably can guess, is vehicle crashes. Number two, falls. Number three, violence. And there's several other reported uh, causes of spinal cord injury, but those are the top three. And obviously, having an injury such as this can affect the quality of life by several factors, but one of which, not surprisingly, is erectile dysfunction that can lead to infertility as well. I know we all have had patients who have had spinal cord injuries, and we all want to do everything we can to help these patients because they have, uh, obviously, a really difficult time trying to get pregnant. And they further go on to say that 80% of spinal cord injury patients have not been able to adequately maintain an erection, and as high as 95% of patients with spinal cord injury have ejaculatory problems. They also discuss how poor sperm parameters are common in spinal cord injury patients, and this is presumably from overactive inflammation and cytokine production in these patients. Additionally, afferent pudendal nerve and efferent pelvic splanchnic nerve signaling can be compromised. So in this review, they aim to update the literature published over the last six years in regards to patients with spinal cord injuries and the reproductive outcomes. So they looked at several studies and ultimately summarized, I'm going to compartmentalize basically what they found in terms of treatments for erectile dysfunction, and then lastly, ejaculatory dysfunction. So we'll start with the erectile dysfunction treatments. So these are in order from least to most invasive. So first is phosphodesterase inhibitors. were the first treatment that they discuss. And assuming partially intact efferent splenic nerves that can release nitric oxide or ultimately lead to nitric oxide release, phosphodesterase inhibitors are commonly used. They have a common side effect that includes mild headaches and facial flushing. They discuss in patients with injuries at or above the level of T6, They're at risk for hypotension and can lead to autonomic dysreflexia, which as you all know, leads to sudden severe rises in blood pressure. And so some of the treatments for autonomic dysreflexia prophylaxis, if taken in conjunction with phosphodiesterase inhibitors can synergistically lead to severe hypotension. So in other words, this is not a very good treatment if you've had a lesion at T6 or above. So the next thing that they discuss is intracavernous injections. There's several different types of vasodilatory agents, such as prostaglandins, to achieve an erection. And surprisingly, they're pretty well tolerated according to the author's results that they had found. But they should be dosed low and titrated up to avoid complications such as bruising, priapism, fibrosis, and pain. And then the most invasive one, that this is typically considered as a last resort for patients with erectile dysfunction, but a penile prosthesis. And this should be considered a last resort mainly because the revision rate is quite high, reportedly as high as about 45%. However, despite this, patients still report pretty good satisfaction rates as high as 80 to 90% according to the studies they evaluated. And then they also discuss supplemental or additional treatments that can help with ED. They do have inconsistent support due to varying levels of efficacy, but these include things such as muscle vibration, vacuum constrictive devices to increase blood flow, as well as epidural spinal cord stimulation. And also before reading this paper, I didn't realize that there was an association between hypogonadism and spinal cord uh, injuries. And this is Thought to be through dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary axis and so although many of these patients have been found to have testosterone deficiency as well and sometimes they recommend supplementing with testosterone depending on where they're at in their fertility journey so now we're going to kind of shift to treatment for ejaculatory dysfunction so now if we take a walk down memory lane to medical school you may recall that parasympathetic nerves are involved in erection while sympathetic nerves are involved in ejaculation Or a more helpful mnemonic that I remember learning in medical school was point-and-shoot. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it always stuck with me. And so, therefore, patients who have a spinal cord injury below T10 are likely to have ejaculatory issues. And so, the following treatments are available to lead to sympathetic stimulation and therefore ejaculation to help with fertility treatments. So, the first of which is penile vibratory stimulation. And they discuss how this is a sound first-line method of sperm retrieval. It's safe, it's relatively non-invasive, and it's cost-effective. Typically, it does have pretty high success rates, as high as greater than about 60% of having adequate sperm retrieval. But this may vary as well, because it all depends on having a preserved reflex arch. The next treatment modality they look at is electroejaculation. And this is typically utilized when the penile vibratory stimulation fails. But this does require postganglionic fibers to be functional and they may not in these patients with these injuries. And although they do discuss that penile vibratory stimulation elicited higher sperm parameters, ultimately no difference was found between the two regarding reproductive outcomes when they look at fertilization of eggs and embryo development. And then in the case if the prior two modalities fail, then that's when we start to consider surgical sperm extraction, such as TESI. And interestingly, the sperm retrieval success rates were significantly greater in patients that were injured less than 12 years ago compared to patients greater than 12 years ago. And reassuringly, when they look at fertility outcomes and IVF for these patients, uh, the literature finds that overall, the methodology of sperm retrieval and spinal cord injury don't significantly impair reproductive childbearing outcomes. And then the last thing they discuss is sperm abnormalities. And so just to kind of summarize what they found regarding this, recent literature supports the sperm abnormalities such as oligospermia Asthenospermia and necrospermia are found within these spinal cord injury patients. And they found that there were recent studies that show that there's possible utility in administering medications such as probenicid that can decrease inflammation and also marabegron, which I'm probably am mispronouncing, but it's an anti muscarinic medication. And this is thought to help ameliorate these pathological changes in sperm irregularities. So overall, these treatments will obviously be done in conjunction with a male infertility specialist, but I thought this paper was a nice review of treatments that are available to our patients who have spinal cord injuries, and it it gives reassurance, too, knowing that there's a lot of different modalities that are out there to help these patients when they come into your office. So what do you guys think? Any thoughts about this paper?
3: First of all, I mean, really comprehensive, great story, and nice summary. But uh, what jumped out at me was the Tessie, the very end. The Tessie did 12 plus minus 12 years. I don't know that you have the answer to this, but is there any literature to suggest that like there's atrophy or some kind of loss of the spermatogonia over time without the, you know, bilateral nerve stimulation, whatever it may be, and whether or not you have the answer to that, is there any indication for uh, men who undergo spinal cord injury to have sperm retrieved and frozen like soon with that idea maybe in mind? Yeah, that's, those are
2: really good points. Now, when I was going through this and reading, there's a couple of different things to address that question. One, they show that in patients who have an injury, say with you do an evaluation, maybe six months to 12 months after the initial injury, they found that there was an acute decrease in sperm parameters. And so there's almost like a sweet spot, if you will, on you don't want to have sperm retrieved, too soon after the injury, but also you don't want to wait several years. And the presumption is if you're waiting several years, is this are these decreases due to the hypogonadal function that these men might undergo, that dysregulation in the HPT axis or HPG axis, or is there inflammation as they had alluded to as well? Maybe this chronic inflammation and hypogonadism is decreasing the sperm function. So I'd be willing to bet you're right in that there probably is a sweet spot and not having it too soon after the injury, but not waiting several, several years, but uh, definitely a good question.
4: I agree with everything you said, like from the fellows perspective, this article gave me a much deeper understanding uh, so that when I meet a uh, patient with this with a spinal cord injury i can really counsel them all of course manage this in conjunction with urology but a much deeper understanding and i liked how they pointed out areas for future research like the hypogonadism that we don't quite understand and i wasn't aware that sacral lesions have a much worse prognosis it makes sense but i didn't know that before so great review uh, i commend the authors
1: molly let's keep going with you and tell us a little bit about which article you chose from the consider this section this month
4: Great. So the article I chose this month is entitled An Increased Focus on Vasectomy: Overturn of Roe v. Wade Catalyzes Rise in U.S. vasectomy requests by first author Jordan Kassab and last author Larry Lipschitz, both from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. In this consider this piece, the authors were interested in whether following the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade in 2022, interest in vasectomies, as well as the actual rate of office consults for vasectomy increased. So after the Dobbs decision, I think many of us saw reports in the media that there were increases in the number of vasectomies and tubal ligations being done. So the authors wanted to quantify this reported increase by looking at Google Trends. How often are people Googling vasectomy? And then within their own clinics, are we actually doing more vasectomy consultations? So they found that searches for vasectomy did spike following the Supreme Court decision. This was a nationwide trend, and they actually found that vasectomies were being Googled the most in states with the tightest abortion restrictions and the states with total bans. And I think that makes sense. And in looking at the data at two clinics that they looked into, they found that their consultations for vasectomies spiked as well. And then they seemed to level out, but they leveled out at a level that was still higher than their clinic's prior average in how many vasectomy consultations they were seeing per day. It didn't look like they had data on how many vasectomies were actually being performed, however. So what do we think of this? I think a lot of these people getting vasectomies might be people who already decided they were done with childbearing and the Dobbs decision just motivated them to call up a doctor and get this done finally. Or maybe they have a partner who was using really reliable contraception, but they say, hey, we should probably double up uh, and I'll get a vasectomy as well because we really don't have any abortion access or really reduced abortion access in the state that we're in. I'm really glad these people are able to access a reliable form of permanent contraception. And the article does cite that they probably have a long wait list that's also contributing to these trends. But from my total bias as a fertility doctor, where I'm seeing the very small percentage of patients who get permanent contraception and later in life might decide this isn't the right choice for them, I'm interested in the statistic they cite that 6% of vasectomy patients later pursue a vasectomy reversal. And I'd have to guess that the rate of regret is higher than that because reversal is only accessed by patients with the resources to do so. And insurance coverage is pretty limited for reversal of permanent contraception. So of course, I worry that the Dobbs decision, combined with a limited set of contraceptive options for people who make sperm, could have pushed some people to get a vasectomy when they might not have chosen this otherwise. So I think the obvious follow-up study will be the rates of Googles of vasectomy reversal and consults for vasectomy reversal at these clinics over the next few years. I'm also really excited about the reversible male contraceptive that's in clinical trials right now and hoping that could open up a lot more acceptable and reversible options for people. I really like any time it's not just the OBGYN speaking up about and engaging in research around contraception and abortion care, and these restrictions really do impact all specialties across medicine. So I think it's great to see this paper coming out of uh, urology departments. So what do you guys think? Is the rise in vasectomies because the Dobbs decision motivated people who wanted permanent contraception anyways, or are you worried people are rushing into them because they're very appropriately concerned about the lack of options in many states if their partner were to have an unintended pregnancy?
2: I suspect this is probably a lot of impulse decisions, uh, being a physician that practices in Oklahoma with a lot of really tight laws and restrictions regarding this after Roe versus Wade was overturned, we just had a massive influx of calls of patients. What do we do with my embryos? Are they safe? What's going to happen? And similarly, I do recall hearing from our urologists here that they've had a ton of vasectomy consults. So I suspect a lot of it will probably have been an impulse decision, but time will tell, I suppose.
1: I still haven't seen the cost effectiveness study that's looked at cost of freezing a sperm sample and then undergoing vasectomy. And then looking at the use of that sperm sample for an IVF cycle, if there is decisional regret versus an actual reversal, trying for six to 12 months and then accessing IVF. I've seen now two flavors of patients, the ones that do bank a sperm sample before a vasectomy. Those are pretty easy when they come back and say, I actually do want that third kid. It's much tougher when you have the couple that didn't bank a sperm sample and are now trying to make the decision between reversal, trying for 12 months, qualifying as having infertility and then accessing IVF. Or paying for all, all of it up front.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, all these points. And uh, I would tend to agree with you, Molly. I think it's people that were probably on their way already um, and they wouldn't have decisional regret. But you do worry about those impulse decisions at play. I mean, that never occurred to me. People may be just reacting um, and there could be uh, some regret with those. And you really worry about that. I, I guess for me, uh, the resolution of the data would need to be a little bit better, right? You need to maybe get a metric on like what the age of these people are. I know it's beyond the scope of the study. You can't really get those metrics. I mean, but it won't be long before you tap into the Google Analytics and it's telling you the age of the people searching, or I'm sure Facebook already has that data kicking around. But that would be interesting to see and I think would give us a more clarity and resolution on whether or not there's going to be another shoe dropping uh, in the times to come. I'm going to round off the discussion with something that's a little bit more
1: lighthearted. I want to talk about herbal supplements. You know your patients are taking it. You know their partners are taking it. We just don't know nearly the extent of how much they're actually taking. And this was a pretty cool paper by Julie Friedman and Alex Plotsky at the University of Colorado, where they surveyed 100 participants attending their academic fertility program and asked them about their use of supplements and herbal medicines and vitamins. Well, won't you know it, 68% of patients report having used supplements or herbal medicines in the past. 53% reported using supplements and 93% reported using vitamins. The median number of supplements used per female patient was two with the range from zero to 19. You read that correctly, you heard it correctly, 19 was the upper limit in terms of number of additional supplements that these patients were taking. And you may be wondering are there certain kinds of patients that are more drawn to supplements well didn't appear to be any real association between the patient demographics their comorbidities their infertility treatments patients of all kind of shape sizes walks of life are using these supplements the most common herbal supplements being used were green tea supplements chamomile peppermint things that we typically associate with kind of general wellness um, stress reduction but also supplements that are a little bit more associated with inflammation and infertility, things like turmeric, elderberry, ginger, maca. These are all things that patients reported taking. The most commonly cited reason for people taking these supplements were 25% of them or so said this is just general health and wellness that they wanted to be on it for. 16% this was just for immune support. The smallest minority said for stress reduction or actual fertility, right around 15%. The most commonly cited ones being used for fertility purposes were maca root. Chastaberry, goji berry, ginger, and then even a yam-based progesterone supplement, which I didn't know of. And maybe they're using that in Oklahoma, Blake, you'll have to tell us. The wild thing is only 8% of these patients were actually told about any of these supplements by their physician. So the vast majority of patients are finding these supplements on their own. These are not things that they're being told that they should be taking or that are advisable to take. And only a third disclosed their full list of supplements to their physician. That's crazy. So you don't even know the extent. When you ask patients, are you any vitamins or supplements and they say no? Oh, chances are that they are. The scary part here, and I think where the study did a nice kind of step further, was they looked at the commonly cited supplements and vitamins that patients were taking, and they identified 41 moderate risk supplement drug interactions, with 12 of these being directly attributed to infertility supplements. So if you don't know patients are taking it, you can't possibly understand how these supplements may or may not be affecting our kind of standard routine therapies, the things that we use over the course of IVF in an early pregnancy. And some of these medications were actually considered not safe in pregnancy. Things like oil, chastaberry, considered possibly unsafe in pregnancy, if you were to look at FDA recommendations, and red raspberry leaf tea, which was commonly used, is considered likely unsafe in pregnancy without direct medical supervision. So all of this to say is if you're not asking about it, you're not going to know. And even if you do ask about it, if you're not thorough, you're probably going to miss out on a lot of the extra supplements that patients are taking. It's really tough when a patient tells you they're taking 19 supplements to kind of take a detailed history and figure out which ones are potentially interacting, which ones are potentially pregnancy safe or unsafe. I typically approach this with a from a point of view of just understanding. And you're probably on these supplements because you think that they're doing something. My job is to make sure that they aren't doing something bad and that they're not going to hurt the chances of treatment that we know is efficacious. Um, I want to avoid that. There's this really great article in the Consider this section as well that I should plug looking at DHEA supplementation and the safety pattern of DHEA, particularly in the modern era where we're getting so many supplements from China and the differing levels of DHEA potency in these supplements. I think it's worth checking out if you're interested in this topic of supplements. Blake, I got to
2: throw it back to you.
1: Are your patients using uh, yam-based progesterone products, or is that just something that exists out on the internet?
2: Are you sure that's internet-based? I mean, just because Oklahoma may have some strange things happen doesn't mean we put yam progesterone together. I just googled yam. I didn't even know what a yam was, so I'm not going to lie. But I'm just thinking about taking 19 supplements. I mean, my grandma who has several medical problems, like chronic medical problems, doesn't even take half the amount of pills. And you know that very, very few of those are actually indicated for anything. I mean, they all have very little data, if any. And it's concerning too, that if people just take these thinking they're going to help because they read it on a blog somewhere. But when I read this paper, and I realized that some of these are in fact possibly harmful to patients, that, that was quite alarming to me because I usually have this presumption that a lot of these are, even though they're not FDA regulated, they're probably not harmful at all. You know, it's just some over-the-counter supplement. But after reading this, it gives me more of a caution to tell my patients, you really probably shouldn't take all of these if you don't know what they are for, if you just read about it online somewhere, but may in fact be doing more harm than good. So I know patients really, really, really want to do all that they can to help their fertility outcomes. And we, of course, do for them as well, but taking 19 pills that you don't know what they have in them or what they do is not really a good start. The
1: supplement industrial complex, I think, is very much a real thing that our patients are having to deal with. And I think the biggest takeaway I have for patients is I just talk about physiology. If you're taking these supplements because you think it's going to make your egg quality better, if you think you're taking these supplements because it's going to increase the yield in an IVF cycle, you were born with these eggs 40 years ago. It's naive to think that taking a fistful of goji berry at 41 is going to undo 40 years worth of genetic damage and the deterioration in egg quality. It's just not going to happen. The minute I think you phrase it like that with patients, it's like, oh yeah, you're right, that kind of seems silly. But like I said, I approach it from a from a vantage point that patients are taking this because they think that this is gonna help them and they want it to help them. I try to point them towards the direction of things that I know to be helpful, like making sure you're on a good prenatal vitamin, make sure there's folic acid in your diet, supplements that are slam dunks, not the goji berries and the chest of berries.
2: But a fistful of yam-based
1: progesterone. In the luteal phase, it sounds like it can't hurt though.
4: Some yam-based progesterone taken throughout the cycle might work as a not very effective contraceptive. I'm not so sure.
3: (laughs) True. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, if your patients think that yam is helping their fertility, they're wrong, Pietro. I just looked it up on the internet. Yam is for twins. If you want to have twins, you yams. Yep. I've had a couple of uh, the only quadruplets I've
1: ever taken care of in residency. And I've taken care of two in case you're wondering Both of them were Central American women that had a yam-based diet, um, for whatever that's worth. there you have it. I was wondering if it was Clomid, but they assured me that it was yams.
4: I do think in terms of practice. A part of me wants to go through and learn everything about all these supplements, so I can really counsel my patient on each and every one. I also know that's not going to be possible. So I think checking out this natural medicines interaction checker and sharing that with patients and, hey, can you do some of your own work and start checking if these are safe or not, and then come back and we can talk about it Maybe my next step.
1: I do love self-education. That's a good point, Molly. Well, listen, folks, we could talk about yam-based progesterone until the cows come home. But I think that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you all for listening, Dale, and Molly, and Blake for getting back together. And until we meet next time, we'll see you on our social media channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And of course, if you're thinking about something that's tickling your brain and you want to put it on paper, make sure you put it together as a consider this section, submit it to us, and we'd love to take a look at it and see what your your thoughts are and share it with our readers. So we meet next time. Bye-bye.
0: This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simoni and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice, or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.